here presently in what we would define as the final week of Jesus' pre-resurrection ministry. It's not the end of his earthly ministry, for Jesus is resurrected from the dead. It's not the end of his ministry in general, because he's still ministering right now. It's not the end of his life, the last week of his life, as some people might define the week of passion. For Jesus, though dies, is again resurrected. So we're kind of defining this week-long period as the final week of Jesus' pre-resurrection miracle, uh, pre-resurrection ministry. With that in mind, uh, the week begins on on a Sunday with Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. A lot of things happen in this particular scene. There's a lot of significance associated with it. Uh, Our big point of emphasis is that according to the law, it wasn't just an accident that Jesus would arrive, present himself, on Sunday, for it was the same day according to the way that the law stipulated pertaining to Passover, where people would come and present their sacrificial lambs. And so on Sunday, it's not that Jesus just arrived, that Jesus was riding a donkey, that people are declaring him the king, but he is being presented in this bigger sense as the spotless lamb of God, offered to atone for the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. And according to the way that things would work its way out, after presenting your lamb, your lamb would undergo a process of inspection. And so really over the next few days, as Jesus is going from Bethany into Jerusalem, from Jerusalem back out to Bethany, Jesus is having this examination. He's going back and forth with the religious leaders. We saw that last week. Jesus kind of stakes a claim, doesn't he? He goes in, he sees that his father's house, which should have been a house of prayer, has been turned into a den of thieves. Jesus is righteously angry, and he acts in his anger. And he drives out the money changers. And then as a result of some of these things, the the religious establishment, the leaders, as they were commissioned to do, they come and they're like, hey, by what authority are you doing these things? From the healing of, 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 of the blind and the lame, the people that come in after he drives out the money changers, to the act of driving out the money. What authority do you have, bucko, to be doing the things that you're doing? And Jesus, as we saw last week, he understands their motivation. He understands they're not really interested in having a genuine conversation. These men have already made up their mind that they hate Jesus they're rejecting Jesus, and they're planning to destroy Jesus. And so Jesus is like, well, let me ask you a question. Let's talk about John the Baptist. By what authority did John do the thing? Was it from heaven or earth? And he catches them in a quandary, because if they were to say, well, from heaven, now they have some explaining to do why they rejected John. And if they say, well, he's just a man in that sense, now they've got some explaining to do to the multitudes that beloved John, that loved John. Now, flowing out of kind of this moment, where Jesus, for the most part, is like, you guys know the truth, you're rejecting the truth, you know who I am, you're resisting that, there's no more need for like a deeper dialogue. I know what you're planning, I know what I'm doing, here we go. It's the last week. Everything will reach a crescendo Thursday night into Friday. But Jesus... He's going to communicate some things. And we again, we, we got into this a little uh, last Sunday, where Jesus, with the understanding that the religious 
establishment has made up their mind. They're hardened. Jesus begins to speak to them in parables. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has spoken in parables. In fact, this was a teaching technique that Jesus employed in various times of his ministry and in various locations. We've already looked at, in the Gospel of Matthew, what is known as the seven kingdom parables. A parable, para, it's to lay alongside. It's to take a story to lay it alongside of a truth. And there is a particular reason that Jesus would often teach in parables, depending on the scenario in the scene, because a parable was designed to very creatively do something brilliant. In some ways, yes, a parable was, was crafted to reveal a truth, a simple truth. And Jesus would take very profound ideas and bring them down into relatable stories so that we could understand big ideas. So Jesus would tell parables, yes, to reveal truth to people. But at the same time, he would teach in parables to conceal truth from people. Now what was the difference between whether or not the parable intended to reveal something to you or maybe conceal it? It depended upon your heart. You see, for the person that was coming to Jesus, to hear from Jesus, open to what he had to say, receptive. Well, the parable would, would, would provide profound enlightenment. But if you were already hardened and stubborn and you're looking to trap Jesus, you might understand the nuance, but you can't pin, pin anything on him. And it conceals things. When Jesus teaches parables, and when we look at parables, it's a dicey dynamic for us because whether or not you're going to get something from the parable or not really depends on your heart this morning. If your heart is hardened and you find yourself resistant to the things of the Lord, you know the truth, but you're resisting the truth, well, then you're going to find some of these things very confusing, bland, dull. There's a concealing. But if you're open, God will reveal some amazing things. So we looked at the first of what's three, three parables. And there's some debate as to where Jesus or, or more, more particularly, what time Jesus is, is doing these teachings. Sometime between Monday and Tuesday, if you're trying to keep track of the week of passion, Jesus shows up Palm Sunday, Sunday, drives out the money changers, technically uh, Monday morning. Whether he's doing this teaching on Monday afternoon or this is rolled over to Tuesday, you can find 100 scholars with 99 opinions. You know, It's just the kind of the way that it works. <clears throat> but Jesus is going through this period of, of inspection, He's going back and forth. Let's reread the previous parable, the first one. Uh, we, we, we dug into it in depth last Sunday, but it'll give us a flavor of, of the rest of the chapter. Jesus says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he said, the first son, uh, no, <laughs> I will not. But afterwards... He regretted it, so he went. He worked in the field. And that, we noted that that word regretted is, it's not just that, that he had kind of this emotional regret, but that there was action to it, so we would call it repentance. You know, there was, there was action to his emotion. So the father's like, go work in the vineyard. And he's like, no, I don't want to. And he goes back to his Xbox. He gets back to his video games. And, and the, the, there's a, a, it starts chewing at him a little bit. And he's like, you know, I, I should go work. And so he does. So the father then comes to the second son and said, likewise. So he invites him to go work in the vineyard. But he answered and said, sure, I'll go. But he did not go. 
Jesus then adds the question to the audience, is which of the two sons did the will of his father? And so they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, and so he's now going to kind of interpret the, the story. He says, assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots will enter the kingdom of God before you. <coughs> For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. And don't forget that John's ministry focused centered on repentance, the turning away from sin, preparing the way for Jesus. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. There's a lot of different ways you can unpack the three parables. And within its kind of macro application, I think that there is a very subtle way of understanding a bigger point Jesus is making. So he's dealing with a group of religious people that have rejected God, which is such an irony, right? They're supposed to be representing God, but they've rejected him. They've resisted him. And you'll find within this parable, the emphasis being the heart of the father, right? So this is about the father. It's about the son, the children's reaction to the dad. You'll find in the next parable, the emphasis will be on the son, and then the third will be the servants, which I think you can interpret to being the Holy Spirit. And there's three parables. Jesus is addressing the religious leaders. And I think he's explaining in some creative detail their rejection of the Father, their rejection of the Son and the consequences, and then their future rejection of the Holy Spirit, what will come. Here it's very clear. There's an invitation given by the Father. And even how you might initially react to that invitation does it really matter? It matters what ends up resulting. And you had the first son that resisted, he rejected, but then there was a conviction. And that conviction led to a change of, of will, of mind, of heart, and he goes and he's obedient. And does the father hold that against him, the first initial hiccup? No, he's just delighted that the son ultimately obeyed. And yet the second son who played the game with his words said, sure, I'll go, but didn't. Again, what a wicked son. And so within this first parable, we see how we react to the invitation of the Father is significant. Let's continue on. Verse 33. New turf. Jesus says, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. He dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, now, right there, the beginning of this story, it's not just relatable to most of the people that are there. They're familiar with the way that, you know, the, the economy worked, the way that vineyards functioned. This was a customary thing that a landowner would lease out the land he would take a cut. People could work, make a living. More broadly, though, this audience of religious people would immediately understand that Jesus is making a, a much more profound correlation. Now, we won't flip all the way back to Isaiah chapter 5. But in Isaiah 5, this whole imagery of the vine dresser having a field and setting a tower and having the wine press, this is imagery that the prophet Isaiah being the mouthpiece for God, uh, very clearly articulates about Israel. So there's already Jesus is building off of 
of a known biblical passage, and he's going to play with the significance and the imagery to make his point. Verse 34. Now, when vintage time drew near, the landowner sent his servants into the sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. So it's time to settle up. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Well, that's rude. I mean, again, they don't own the land. And the landowner, to be very honest, could not lease it out at all. It's his prerogative. And yet he's, he's being kind, he's being noble, he's allowing the vine dressers to work his property, work his land, but there's an agreement in place. There's a, fa a fair, equitable deal. And so it's time to reckon. It's time, vintage time, the harvest is happening, they're producing the wine, you know, things are kicking into gear. And so the landowner sends servants and he's like, hey, it's, he wants his cut. But the reaction of these people that have just been giving a great deal. The servants come and they're like, you know, enough of this. And they act out violently. Again, they beat one of the servants. They killed one and stoned the other. You know, typically when you read that someone is stoned, they die. This guy apparently didn't die because we already had a dead one. So they beat one, and then they really beat another guy. And the one guy is so beaten, he's dead. And you always leave one guy where he can hobble back to bring the report. And then the owner, he gets the report. Look at verse 36. So he understands what's happened. What do I do now? Well, again, he sent other servants. And pause there for just a moment. I've got that highlighted. Would you do that? I wouldn't. I'd be like, oh, point taken. I'm coming with a crew. You know, battle royale, this is going down. And, and yet what? Again, he sent other servants. Not to enact any type of retribution, not to carry forth any vengeance. But he sends them again with the same intentions of the first which to me, I have it highlighted because there's just so much grace that oozes from that, right? What do these men deserve? Well, righteous judgment. And yet the landowner, he just sent more servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, Jesus sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now imagine you're in the audience. You know, I mean, Jesus is... Is, this is part of his teaching. He's telling this story. You're hanging on every word. There's a little bit of uneasiness to this, right? You're like, okay, first group get beaten and stoned, and one guy dies. He sends more servants. Same thing happens to them. Why? Why would you send your son? Jesus is like, well, the, the landowner, he, he's reasoning, well, they will respect my son. And the audience is like, no, they won't. Do not understand what's happening here. These are not people to be, to be trifled with. They'll respect my son, verse 38. But when the vine dressers saw the son, and everyone in the audience is like, we know what's coming. 
They said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vine of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? So this is the question that Jesus asked. So he tells the story. First group of servants, beaten, stoned, killed. Second group, larger than the first, same thing happens. He's like, they'll, they'll respect my son. Son shows up, they're like, hey, there's the heir. They take him, take him outside, and they kill him. So Jesus asked a question. He says, what will he do? Verse 51, so they, being the audience, they said back to Jesus, he will destroy those wicked men, not just destroy them, destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? And then he quotes from Psalm 118. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, verse 43, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took Jesus for a prophet. So in the first parable, there is the emphasis on how we respond to the father, the invitation of a father. And no doubt, sad to say, that when it came to the Hebrew people, they had rejected the father. God had called them and commissioned them said, I'll give you a land flowing with milk and honey. You will be my people. I will be your God. Yes, there's some expectations. I want you to be a city on a hill, a light into the world. And the Hebrew people, yes, sure, they might have had some seasons where they were obedient. Some seasons where they took God's calling for real and seriously and, and followed through with the expectations. But more often than not, they rebelled. They played the harlot. They resisted what God was doing in their midst. And what would God do in these times, these seasons of rebellion? He would send servants. And what would happen? This wicked group of people that had been given the vineyard, that had been allow, allowed to, to till the soil, they would beat and stone and reject the prophets. You go back through the stories of the prophets, from Isaiah to Jeremiah to all the minor prophets. He would send some prophets and they would be rejected and resisted. And what would he do? And then he would send more. He didn't have to, but he would. And then ultimately, while all of his servants had been rejected and resisted and treated poorly and unfairly, diabolically, the father then does the unexpected. He sends his son. Surely they will respect the son. Now in the story, Everyone's like, no, no, they're not going to do that. This is going to end up bad for the son. And Jesus knows that as well. So does the father. 
and yet the son is sent. And he is, is killed. And, and we see that within the children of Israel, that God sent John as the final, the last prophet, and then he sent his son. They rejected John, and then he, one last Hail Mary, he sent Jesus. And they will about to do, they do exactly what everyone would expect. And so then Jesus poses a question. What comes next? What do you think the father, his reaction is going to be after you deal so poorly with the son? And they answer Jesus, and he doesn't correct them, meaning their answer is pretty legit. He will destroy them. And the destruction of them will be so bad, it'll be miserably. It'll be a miserable destruction. Yes, because the grace of the Father only goes so far in the presence of someone rejecting all of his goodness. You know, the only thing that grace can't overcome is the rejection of grace. That's the only thing. Grace can do amazing things in your heart, in your life, in your marriage, in your family. But the only thing when it comes to grace that it does necessitate, and we see this all throughout Scripture, is receiving it. It's all that's asked is to receive it. And here we find the Jewish people, they have rejected Jesus, they have resisted Jesus. And then Jesus following, you know, and they'll get destroyed. He says, and then he quotes from Psalms, he says, you know, the, the, the stone that was rejected by the builders is the chief cornerstone. He, he applies this kind of messianic picture, this idea to himself. And he says, in the presence of your rejection, God's work won't be done, but what will he do? He will take the vineyard from you, and he will give it to another. Jesus says, he will give it to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, there's some debate here and there in regards to the particulars of what Jesus is saying. I think that the best understanding of this is that this ends up being the church. And we see that, you know, just within the arc of, of God's story, following the rejection, the the gospel came, we're told by, by Paul, to the Jew first. But because the Jew rejected it, God's grace then was extended to the Gentiles who received it. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever the stone falls, it will grind him to powder. So that's such an interesting, such an interesting phrase. And again, it's one of those verses, just full disclosure, that I'm not, I'm not quite sure I completely understand. I, I will say that obviously the stone in question has already been defined. It's Jesus. And so if you if you read it again, whoever whoever falls on Jesus will be broken, but on whoever Jesus falls, it will grind him to powder. I think maybe the best understanding of that is that the essential component of salvation, a lot of people don't like this, it's the one selling point that doesn't float real well, and that is brokenness. It is the coming to the end of yourself. It is the, the reaching the end of your rope. It is the acknowledgement, I can't do this, I have failed at it, and I need help. There has to be a brokenness. Jesus being this stone, we'll, we'll read 
in the Gospels, the, the, the stone, it can be the cornerstone upon which a life is built, the place of brokenness, the life that now builds upon Jesus. We also know that the cornerstone can be destructive. Again, reading it, whoever falls on the stone, whoever comes and falls on Jesus, you're on top of the stone. There's brokenness, but it will yield life. Whoever upon which the stone falls, it will grind to powder. A great example of this would be in Daniel chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar has the dream, the empires of the world, and what comes? A stone from heaven, and it destroys everything, grinds it to powder, adds chaff into the wind, and it's all gone. You, you have a choice what kind of relationship you'd like with Jesus. One where he grinds you to powder, or one that, yes, does necessitate brokenness on your part, but where he then becomes the foundation. And then I'm reminded of, of another story Jesus tells about the decision that we all have to make on what are we going to base our life around? What are we going to build our life, our family upon? Sand? I love the beach. Dangerous place to live. Why? Because, well, what happens when you build a life upon the sand, upon things that shift? Well, when storms come, there's no substance, there's no anchor. It's blown away, but Jesus would then exhort, build your house upon the rock. What is he talking? He's talking about himself. Now, the reaction to this second parable, the multitudes get it. And, and I love the reaction of the religious leaders. They're like, huh. Hey, guys, I'm not sure if, if you're picking up what he's putting down. Um, but I, I think he might be talking about us. And if that's the case, this is no good. And they want to lay hands on him. They want to arrest him right there. Right, right there. But they can't. They fear the multitude. Chapter 22, the third parable. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parable. And said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf have been killed. And all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Verse 5, but they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized the servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. So he sent out his armies, and he destroyed those murderers, and he burned up their city. Dang straight. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, still ready. And those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. 
So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless, didn't utter a word. So the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Day did not play out well for that guy. And then Jesus concludes the parable by saying, For many are called, but few are chosen. Again, such an interesting story designed to reveal a truth while concealing truth. Jesus says, and always keep it in context, he says at the beginning, the kingdom of heaven is like. So sometimes within parables, you can try to take every single minute detail and find some spiritual correlation to it, and you can get into all kinds of trouble and theological shakiness. Jesus is telling a story. It's like this. It's not this. It's like it. And I think you'll get my point. And we find within the story several different groups of people being invited to the same event. You have the father and his son is getting married and he's throwing the wedding. And he's inviting people to the wedding. It's a wonderful celebration. It's a festivity. It's incredible. The facts, the, the, the oxen and the fatted calf have been slaughtered. You don't have to bring anything. The food is provided. The drinks flow. It's a great time. It's a great wedding. It's a wonderful feast. And we find different reactions to the invitation. Not the first group. Go back. Verse 3. So he sent out his servants to those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. So, So you have this first group of people that really seem to be just... For the most part, we might say indignant. Oh, the, oh man, your son's getting married this weekend? Yeah, I, you know. Yeah, I just don't want to go. Like, they're not hostile. They're just ambivalent in, in the sense of, of, eh. There's not like, hey, thanks for the invite. It's like uh, the wedding not interested. Not interested. So you have this first group that are just indifferent. And then you have the second group. Again, he sent out servants. But note they made light of it, verse 5. They made fun of it. It wasn't just that they weren't going to go or that they were indifferent or that they were rejecting the invitation. They made fun of the whole event, the whole affair. David Guzik will call this an antagonistic attitude. Because unlike the first group who are just like, yeah, we don't want to go. This group, it's not just that they don't want to go. They make fun of it. There's a hostility. And their hostility even even gets to the point where they start treating uh, the, the servant spitefully. And it's in response to the, that attitude. <laughs> That we see the the father like, whoa, oh, oh. 
And he takes decisive action. He brings his armies. He destroys them, burns down the city. Hope you get the point. Now, he doesn't do that with the first group, does he? But he does it with the second group. And, and if, you're, if you're trying to, again, place this within the context that Jesus is having, this interaction with the religious leaders, there's the multitudes there. He's trying to reveal truth, conceal truth. We understand how the application of the, the Father's making an invitation. How you respond is important. And Jesus is looking at these religious leaders and he's like, the invitation was to you. And you said with your mouth, yeah, we'll go in. But you didn't. And these other people that you look down upon, the tax collectors, the publicans, the sinners, the harlots, all of these multitudes of people that maybe at first were like, yeah, we kind of rejected the, God had, the life God had for us, kind of woke up at some point like, you know, this isn't really playing out very well. Maybe I'll get up off my keister and go into the vineyard. How we respond to the invitation of a father matters. And then how we treat the son matters, right? Receiving the son, the implications of rejecting the son. How we handle Jesus is important. He is the stone in which we're invited to build our lives upon. And then you get to this next, the wedding. Now, in biblical imagery, Israel is always described as the wife of Christ. It's why to communicate how God felt about Israel's idolatry, he commissioned a prophet named Hosea to marry a whore and deal with it. What's what's he saying? That's how I feel our marriage is working out. That's really what the whole idea of Hosea is about. You're playing a harlot. You're playing a prostitute. I've loved you. I've chosen you. I've, 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 I've been patient with you. I've redeemed you, even at your lowest. But you keep whoring around. So Israel gets presented in that idea. But then, again, a new nation, things get handed over. The church is called what? We are the bride of Christ. The bride of, uh, the bride of Jesus. Which is a beautiful thing. And ultimately, while we are the bride of Christ, there will be a marriage supper in heaven. When Jesus comes for his bride, he is where? Preparing a home. We're in the betrothal phase. And when the home is prepared and the father says, according to the Jewish custom, son, you can go get your bride, who is keeping herself ready And that moment, Jesus gets to come, and he gets to take his bride home to the home he's prepared, and a feast, a festival commences. Now, the idea what Jesus is painting here is is the Father, it's ready, it's time, and he's sending out invitations. And there's a group of people that are like, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to be a part of that. And God just kind of lets you go. He lets you do your thing. And then there's another group that they're like, oh, the wedding? I'm going to make fun of that. Not only do I not want to attend, (laughs) you guys are Looney Tunes. And guess what? God takes it personally. He takes it personally. And we will see an ultimate destruction at the end of it all. Now, there's a third person that gets tangled up in some things here that we need to address before we get to those that do respond. In in verse 11, 
we're told that the king came to see the guests, but there was a man who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, in, in this culture, and, and again, you can find, I'm not Jewish, none of us are Jewish, and we weren't around in the first century. So when you start reading about first century customs, you got to take it always with a little bit of grain of salt because you weren't there and I wasn't there, and the people writing the histories weren't there. There could be some truth to certain things, but it's hard, again, to go dogmatic on it. Some people believe that there were, especially in, in the presence of a king, you were invited to the wedding, all the guests were provided cool attire. So think of it in, in our day, instead of just the bridesmaids getting dresses, all the ladies get dresses. And instead of just, uh, you know, the groomsmen having tuxes, everybody that shows up is fitted for a tux. Kind of get that idea in your mind. So the father comes and he's checking out a ragtag group of people, which we'll get to in a moment. And he sees one guy that's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not, didn't want to wear the digs. And he's like, friend, what's going on? Yeah, I didn't want to wear them. So he turns to the servants. He's like, bind them hand and foot, throw them out in the eternal darkness. Um, can I reconsider? <laughs> so what, what, what is that guy? What is that guy? And, and I think that this is where Jesus is making an indictment of the religious leaders. For they felt as though their garments were pure and clean and good enough. And yet we all have to be clothed not with our righteousness, but we have to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, of his glory. And this person, again, you can find some, some debate about him and what Jesus is trying to articulate. But it's the person that is like, hey, you know, I want to go to the wedding feast. I'm not, I'm not indifferent. I'm not antagonistic. But, you know, I'm not really willing to accept the terms, that my righteousness has to be replaced for yours. And thus they ultimately meet a similar fate as the ones that were even antagonistic. Now, the part of the story that's great is those that actually do respond. So all this stuff happens. Go back to verse 8. So he said to his servants, hey, the wedding, it's still ready. Those who were invited, apparently they're not worthy. So go into the highways and just invite everybody. So the servants, they go out, they gathered all whom they found to the point that the wedding hall is filled. But who is it filled with? I love, the, the, I love the order of the words. It's filled with both bad and good. It's not filled with good and bad. That's how we would typically define it. It's filled with bad and the good. Meaning kind of like there's way more bad than there's good in this motley crew of people. But why are they there? Two things. They accepted the invitation. And they were willing to wear the garment. And so they're included. You know, these people didn't have to get cleaned up beforehand. They didn't, they didn't have to, to, to do some type of religious orthodoxy. They didn't have to make some confessions. That all they had to do, they didn't have to change their lives in the moment. They just had to say, there's a wedding? And I'm getting invited by the king to the wedding of his, I'm there. I mean, I look terrible. Don't worry, we got garments. Do I need to pay some money? No, it's free. Just accept it. The good, the bad, and we the ugly. And then the conclusion. For many are called, 
but few are chosen. Now this word, many, in the Greek is better translated all. So reading it, for all are called. I mean, within the dynamic here, there's not an exclusion to those invited. The emphasis of the parable is he's inviting everybody, but let's talk about who responds, how they respond, and the implications of their response. So within the context of the parable, it makes sense that, well, it's not many. The emphasis here isn't who's being invited. It seems like all is being invited. What's the emphasis of the parable? On our response to the invitation. So all are called is probably a better way to read it. And then when you read, but few are chosen, who's doing the choosing? Like, what's the implication? Is this a story about who God chooses to invite? He invites everybody. But what's the emphasis of the parable? How people respond to the invitation. Who chooses to be there? That's the idea of the parable. Now, there are people that will try to take this, for many are called, but few are chosen, to say, you see, some people are just damned to hell. That God doesn't really call everyone. And they get into this whole, like, Calvinistic debate that's just nonsense. Taking it completely out of the context that the emphasis is on on us choosing. And what does Jesus say? The Father calls everybody. But what's the reality? Few choose to respond to the invitation. Now, if you get hung up on certain debates, and you're like, I don't know if I believe that, Pastor. I think this is all about, you can't be saved if he doesn't call you. And I don't know if I've been called. Well, he's doing it right now. So be chosen. Say what? Yeah, if you're worried about not being called, Accept the invitation, you've been called. Like it, it, We don't have to get into the semantics of, of like sovereignty and free will. Where's my free will with God's sovereignty? I don't know if I'm part of the elect. How about this? Get saved today and you are part of the elect. Done. You can check it off. How we respond. And again, in, in the picture... The servants. See, I, I, I do feel as though that the servants, why not believe that it's the Holy Spirit, again, within the order of the Father, the Son, and the, the Spirit. Where do we get, how can I make that bridge? Well, you know, one of my favorite sections of the book of Genesis is a, is a couple chapter, chapter 22, 23, 24, right in there. Abraham gets called. Take your only begotten son and sacrifice him. Where? Moriah. Same place. And they go up. There's the story. There's this exchange. Abraham is like, I'm going to follow through with this. And God's at the moment, throws on the brakes, provides a ram that was in the thicket, substitute. It's fine. And we see Isaac accordingly as being a picture of Jesus, a type of Jesus, the only begotten son. What's fascinating And so they make this three-day journey to the the mountains of Moriah. And then when they get there, Abraham's like, hey, it's just me and Isaac going. And they leave the servants behind, and he takes the son up. It's just the two of them. At the end of the story, it's, it's fascinating, only Abraham returns. Only Abraham comes back. You don't have Isaac at all. Abraham returns to the servants, and they go back. Where's Isaac? 
If I'm the servants, I'm like, what did you do with Isaac, you know? You don't see Isaac again until this scene. I'll tell you. In the course of time, Abraham decides, my only begotten son needs a wife. And so he commissions, he's old, he commissions Eleazar, his chief servant. Says, Eleazar, you need to, to go back to my home country. From my kin, my family, you need to find a righteous wife. You need to bring her out of the world, bring her back so she can be wed to my son. So Eleazar does it. And Eleazar ultimately comes back with Rebecca. And the next time we see Isaac is when Eleazar is bringing Rebecca across a field and Isaac comes out to meet his bride. That is the moment you see Isaac after Moriah. And Eleazar is bringing to him a wife. I'm going to take a guess what Eleazar means. It means the Spirit of God. You see, Jesus is preparing a home for us. And his spirit, God has sent his spirit, his servants, into the world to invite everyone to come to the, the wedding feast. And some people are indifferent to the moving of the spirit in their hearts. And they're not interested. And God says, be what you be. And then there are some that are, are antagonistic and hostile to the Holy Spirit. And there are consequences. But it's those who respond. The Spirit goes out into the highways and the byways, likely where he found some of you. And you heard the invitation of the Spirit that you could be part of the family of God. And you're like, yes, I got nothing to wear. The Spirit's like, it's okay, I'll clothe you in righteous garments. Do I have to pay something? Do I need a mani-pedi? No, I'll clean you up, I'll prep you, and then one day I'll bring you. I'll bring you to the, to the groom. Beautiful picture. And again, <laughs> you you gotta, you got to imagine the heaviness for these religious leaders. And you can understand why they get even more angry by the implications of, of what he's saying. Do we respond? Please know, you know, they talk about, and I'll close with this. Jesus will, will have a sermon on the mount. He talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Call that the unpardonable sin. And people get really worked up about the unpardonable sin. Why? Because it's unpardonable. And you're like, that's the one I don't want to commit. Like, I can come back from everything else, but whatever the unpardonable one is, I got I to gotta stay clear of. Well, the unpard it's, it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You see, you will first encounter the resurrection, the revelation of the Father. And if you reject the Father, that's not the end of the story. It's not as though God's done. You see, even when you reject the Father, what will, what will the Father still do? Well, they rejected me. Maybe, maybe they'll respect my son. So he sends Jesus. 
And then they reject Jesus. And even then, the father's like, well, I'll send my servant the spirit, the minister of the helper. And if you reject the spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, reject the spirit's working in your heart, the spirit's working in your life, there's no more God to send. I mean, it's not more complicated than that. The Father, you rejected. The Son, you rejected. Now the Holy Spirit, you rejected. There's not a fourth option. Which is why when you die in rejecting all of the revelation of God, resisting all of his love, all of his invitation, all of his grace, well, it's eternal separation. God's like, well, you didn't ever want to hang out with me on earth. Why do you think you want to hang out with me now in eternity? I mean, you hated me, rejected me, resisted me, made fun of my people. Now you want to hang out with us? For many, and all, the call. But few are chosen. Have you chosen? So, Father, Lord, we thank you for